This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Sam and Rose Stein Institute for Research on Aging's monthly public lecture series. For those of you I haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Danielle Glorioso, and I am the Director of Research and Development at the Stein Institute. At the Stein Institute, we're committed to advancing lifelong health and well-being through research, training, and community outreach. This public lecture series is just one of the examples of our community outreach programs that's been occurring for over 20 years now. And as many of you know, this lecture series was born out of the idea that we want to get exciting developments in research on aging out to the community. So this lecture series has been occurring for over 20 years and has been sponsored entirely through private donations like yours. So we really want to thank you for supporting the Stein Institute all these years. If you'd like to learn more about the work that we're doing at Stein or to donate to Stein, you can learn more about us at aging.ucsd.edu. We are really excited for our speaker tonight. We have Dr. Laredo, who is Professor of Clinical Medicine and Medical Director of the UC San Diego Sleep Medicine Center and the VA Pulmonary Sleep Disorders Lab. He's going to be speaking to us on sleep disorders in older adults. Dr. Laredo's medical practice is focused on patient care, medical education, and clinical research. His research involves an NIH-funded study on a large epidemiological study of sleep health in Hispanics in San Diego County. We are thrilled to have Dr. Laredo here tonight, so please welcome Dr. Laredo. Thank you very much. I would like to thank the Stein Institute for their kind invitation. Um, and tonight, uh, or this evening, uh, we'd like to hopefully be instructive. At the same time, um, raise questions. Uh, I understand we're going to have a question and answer session towards the end of this talk. Up to one-third of our lives is spent sleeping. That means that if you live to be 100 years old, 33 of those years you will actually spend sleeping. It's something that we really don't think about, uh, but it's a long time. Now, some of us who only sleep six hours per night will spend 25% of our lives sleeping. We used to think that sleep was a process where your brain turned off and uh, you just became unconscious, and in the morning you woke up and started again. But now we know that sleep is a very, very intricate, very uh, well-formed type of process. Uh, we have, uh, for the last 50 years, 50, 55 years is when we've learned more, much of what we know about sleep medicine. And we now know that sleep has these very specific sleep stages. You've probably heard of REM sleep. A lot of people remember REM sleep and deep sleep and light sleep. Uh, and these stages have physiological significance. It's important to have the right amount of these sleep stages in order to get a good night's sleep. So it's a very elaborate, precise mechanism. And this slide here is not to show you how to read uh, polysomnography, which is what we're showing here, just to show you the various sleep stages that we can see. And I can show you the bottom one. The bottom one is uh, REM sleep, because the eyes are moving rapidly when the person is asleep. Now, this may sound like a funny question, but why do we have to sleep? When I was a medical student, uh, I had a professor 
who was looking for substance S in the brain someplace, some, some sleep. Uh, and he would argue, his hypothesis was, well, if I can get a lot of work done in uh, eight hours of work, what if I can stay awake all day long and recover at the same time and I get more done? Well, I tell you, I like my sleep. Sleep is important. And um, uh, I know that uh, people are trying to stay awake to do more, but we have found out that the amount of sleep and the quality of sleep is very important for optimum health. We know that sleep is a state of cardiovascular relaxation. It's very important to prevent cardiovascular disease. When you go to sleep, your blood pressure drops by about 10 to 20%. And even if you take a nap, uh, we now understand that that nap may be significant in lowering your pressure and somewhat helping you to prevent cardiovascular disease. Although the naps have uh, some questionable um, reasons too, because it could be a marker that you're not getting enough sleep at night. It turns out that sleep is very important for learning. I tell this to my students and my residents and my fellows. It is, it is better to study and sleep and then take the test. You'll do a whole lot better than if you sleep and study and take the test. It's also very important to have a good night's sleep before you study in order to learn well. We get, we, in medicine we, in science, we get very exciting, excited when we see a 5% change that is statistically significant, a 10% change. Well, when we deal with learning and, and remembering things and memory and sleep, we're talking about 30, 40, 50% improving the ability to remember things. Just a quick example, for example, REM sleep. REM sleep is important for remembering the just of things. If you're going to take a test that is multiple choice, uh, you do very well if you have good REM sleep that night. Deep sleep is more important for spatial things. Somebody learning a piano routine, uh, a dance, uh, a surgeon learning uh, a surgery. It's very, very important. So it's very important. Now, but one thing we're sure of, which is sleep is the cure for sleepiness. Because when you go to sleep, you wake up and you feel better. Now, any time that sleep is affected, whether you're not getting enough sleep or your sleep is disturbed, it significantly affects our health and overall well-being. This slide shows patients who have obstructive sleep apnea. And this is somebody who doesn't have sleep apnea, and then it increases in severity. This is severe, more than 30 choking events per hour when they're asleep. That's severe sleep apnea. And they followed these individuals for 10 years. And notice how the difference between the mortality, this is survivability, of patients without sleep apnea, these people who snore and choke and gasp at night, versus those who have severe sleep apnea. Quite a difference. It's a difference almost 20 or 25% survival after 10 years. So sleep is very important for overall health. And it's turning out that not just sleep quality, but sleep duration is very important for health. There have been a number of very large studies looking at uh, what short sleep duration, habitual sleep duration, short sleep duration does to health. And the first study here shows that in those patients who slept on average less than six hours per night, there was a higher risk of hypertension, sleeping less than five hours per night, and this is about 72,000 nurses. I believe it's a little more than 72,000 nurses. They follow them for 10 years. And these nurses who didn't sleep very long on a habitual basis, they had a higher risk of developing a, a, a cardiovascular event, uh, either a heart attack or a stroke in those uh, 10 years. And sleep is, 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 is kind of a funny thing because it follows the Goldilocks model. 
where too much sleep is not that good, too little sleep is not that good. You, you need just the right amount, which turns out to be around seven to eight hours of sleep. And, um, and when you sleep um, <clears throat> the right amount, you have less complaints, um, you survive more, and hopefully you've lived longer. And some of us would like to live forever, for that matter. Now, what makes us sleep? Right now, I'm just giving you a little bit of the basics of sleep medicine. Then we'll get into the sleep disorders. Uh, and I know some of you may have some questions. Some of you have already approached me. But there are a number of forces that drive us to sleep. The two major ones are the circadian forces and the homeostatic forces. Circadian and homeostatic. Most people have heard about circadian. Circadian means near a day, about a day. It turns out that our brains have in the middle of it, and I'll show that a little later on, a nucleus, a center, that is our master clock. It regulates when we get sleepy and when we are more awake. Now, the homeostatic forces, uh, think of it as the need for sleep as it accumulates when we go from morning to evening. And you're in the morning, you don't feel that sleepy, yet in the evening, we feel like we want to doze off, we want to fall asleep. It's, it's the tiredness that overcomes us. And it turns out that it looks like the brain actually is being damaged as we go through the day. And, and certain chemicals accumulate in the brain. And when we go to sleep, and in the morning, those chemicals are gone, and the brain appears to be much better. There was a recent research showing that when we go to sleep, certain genes turn on that actually repair the neurons and the, and the, the nerves. Uh, when we're asleep. There's other reasons for sleeping. Uh, neurohormonal forces, uh, certain hormones come out, you know, a growth hormone, we go into deep sleep. Uh, there, there's melatonin that come out when the lights get dim. Uh, and then there's uh, also sociocultural forces. And where I come from, at least where my parents come from, they like to take a nap in the afternoon. And, uh, and some people feel that that is healthy also. Now, this is the circadian rhythm I was telling you. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is our master clock. Every cell in your body has a little clock and follows a certain routine, certain rhythm through the day, a 24-hour rhythm, or close to 24 hours. It turns out that this rhythm is not 24 hours. It's about 24 and a half, plus or minus. So it's not quite a day. And our world has a day of 24 hours. So in order for us to live in this world, we need to entrain our brains into a 24-hour day. And that's done through light. So sunlight goes through our eyes, the optic nerves go straight to the suprachiasmatic nucleus and entrains it into a 24-hour day. People who, for whatever reason, stay indoors all the time in dim light, sort of like where you are right now, you may end up having problems with your circadian rhythm, either falling asleep too early most of the time or falling asleep too late because you're not entraining your brain into a 24-hour day. Um, <clears throat> and this is more or less what the rhythm looks like. At 9 in the morning, we're sort of most awake. We have a dip around 1 to 2 to 3 p.m. Remember that dip after you have dinner or, I mean, lunch? We all feel like taking a little siesta right there. By 9 p.m., we're awake again, and we're the sleepiest around 2 to 3 in the morning. And uh, this correlates very well with the core body temperature. We're sleepy when we're cold, and we're awake when we're warm. Just things that we have learned. Now, our sleep quality or sleep stages changes as we age. For example, a five-year-old child will have lots of deep sleep. This black uh, stripe here is deep sleep or slow-wave sleep. This is REM sleep, so a little bit of less REM sleep. And as we age, you can see the slow-wave sleep goes down. REM sleep sort of stays steady as we age, 
But our, this is wake after sleep onset increases. Why? Because as we age, we develop um, aches and pains, diseases, fears, anxieties, and we don't sleep as well. Our need for sleep does not change as we get older, but our, our ability to sleep does decrease as we get older because of these things. However, it's not necessary. If you stay healthy and you have a healthy routine and have a, a healthy mind, there's no reason why you can't sleep in a, in a normal fashion until you're 110 years old. Um, and by the way, the slower sleep drops dramatically at the very end, and that is primarily in men. Women are able to maintain their slower sleep until the very end, just a little bit down, but men drops precipitously after 85, 75 to 80 years of age for unclear reasons uh, at the same time right now. Now, there's a few co uh, common sleep disorders that we'd like to discuss tonight if we have enough time. One of them is obstructive sleep apnea. You probably heard about this. Let's see if we can get to insomnia, advanced sleep phase circadian disorders, and REM sleep behavior disorders. These are, these are uh, sleep disorders that commonly affect us as we're aging. Now, what are these birds doing? They're sleeping. But look how they're sleeping. They're sleeping on one leg. They've got a leg tucked under their bodies. Their, their, their head is under their wing. There could be a strong breeze, and these guys will not fall down. Can you do that? Can you sleep like them? Well, this little girl's trying. She's trying to sleep standing up. We cannot sleep and stand up. Uh, oftentimes, we stand up when we are so sleepy and that wakes us up, but we cannot fall asleep like that. We cannot cough when we are asleep. We, we wake up, and then we cough, and then we go back to sleep. That's why I tell my, my residents and interns, if somebody's complaining they can't sleep because of cough, give them something. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to rest. We cannot swallow very well uh, when we're asleep. We can swallow, but not very well. This is where we aspirate. This is where a lot of uh, folks end up with a pneumonia because we swallow, we don't cough. The stuff gets in there, and it starts brewing, and we have a pneumonia. And we have a hard time keeping our airways open. The tongue tends to fall back, and then you snore. And, uh, and you end up in what is called obstructive sleep apnea. So what is obstructive sleep apnea? Obstructive sleep apnea basically is pauses in breathing when you're asleep. Associate, those are the apneas, absence of breath, followed by very loud gasping noises, snoring, uh, and you could be snoring, the patient could be snoring throughout the night. Um, it results in brief awakenings, what we call arousals from sleep, and they can be quite numerous. And the immediate result is excessive daytime sleepiness. And these folks, if you've seen them, you've probably seen them, they're snoring loud, all of a sudden they stop. And then they come out uh, in top gear again, snoring and choking and gasping, just to do it again, and sometimes hundreds of times uh, through the night, or hundreds of times per hour through the night. This is an example of what we call a polysomnogram. It looks complicated, but it's not. These two channels right here are airflow channels. We measure the airflow through the nose and through the mouth. And notice they're flat. There's no airflow. These two channels are effort channels. One is the chest, one is the belly. And notice that when they're moving, actually they're moving the opposite direction. Normally they should move the same direction. Why? Because the patient is completely obstructed and it's making respiratory efforts, but it can't. So no airflow and the patient's trying to breathe. And look at the oxygen. This oxygen was about 95, 96%, dropped as low as 66%. This is one of our patients at UCSD showing severe obstructive sleep apnea. This happens through the entire night. It puts a tremendous amount of stress in the cardiovascular system. The patient is waking up. Uh, this is an arousal here. 
and in snoring and gasping, and repeats it all through the night. And in the morning, they feel worse than when they went to bed. In fact, their blood pressure may even rise when they're asleep as compared to when they're awake. And so the end result, when this happens for years on end, is cardiovascular disease, hypertension for sure, and also strongly associated with cardiovascular disease. So we look at it from the big picture, sleep apnea, causes sleep fragmentation, those are the microarousals, awakenings, hypoxemia, hypercapnia, that is low oxygen and high carbon dioxide in the blood because you're not breathing well enough, causes excessive daytime sleepiness, somnolence, and the long-time cardiovascular complications and increases morbidity, that's disease, and mortality, death. Now, I don't want to insult anybody, but I was going to say this is the typical middle-aged American male, right? Hopefully not, because I'm middle-aged. Hopefully I don't look like this. But nevertheless, when I see patients come into my office that look like this, in fact, this is one of our patients that allow us to take a picture on him, give us permission. And um, <clears throat> truncal obesity, basically the fat, and uh, it's, it's more in, in the chest, uh, short, thick neck, skinny arms, skinny legs. Um, and they come in complaining of snoring and being sleepy during the day. This is obstructive sleep apnea, and they're proven otherwise. What about her? Do you think that she could have sleep apnea? I see a lot of no's, and I see some yeses. Well, it turns out that about 25 to 30% of our patients look like this young lady. And I have patients that look like this, and they still have obstructive sleep apnea. Not everybody with sleep apnea is obese or overweight. They could be perfectly normal. In fact, their physical exam can look quite normal, but there's a problem with their functionality. The airway just does not stay open. It relaxes more than normal people, and in consequence, they snore and they have apneas, and they have problems during the day. This is a study that sort of put sleep apnea in the map. Back in 1993, this is the uh, Wisconsin cohort study. Terry Young published this. All they did, they grabbed 600 people off the street, you know, middle-aged individuals, 30 to 60 years of age, and they did a sleep study. Took them to the lab and did a sleep study. And it turned out that 24% of men and 9% of women qualify for having sleep apnea based on the number of times does it stop breathing at night. And now those who had symptoms, only 4 and 2%. Now the same group looked at the, at the similar group of people in 2003, 10 years later, and now they calculated that 17% of us here in the United States had mild or more severe obstructive sleep apnea. It turns out that as the girth of the nation increases, so does the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea because it's strongly associated with being overweight, although not everybody. But our nation definitely has been getting bigger. If you look at very specific populations, in this case, uh, for um, as we age, older veterans, up to 80% of our patients here at San Diego VA have obstructive sleep apnea. If we look at them, they have it. And we just have to do a study on them. People with drug-resistant hypertension, if it takes three, four medications to control your blood pressure, we always teach the doctors, think about obstructive sleep apnea. In fact, this is the most... Um, uh, steady association we find. Uh, the elderly, up to 70% of the elderly, if I just take anybody who's 85 years old, I will find some sleep apnea. What we don't know is, is it affecting your health? Will, will, if I treat it aggressively, would I help you live longer? We don't know that yet. We do know that if you are symptomatic and you're elderly and you have obstructive sleep apnea, I treat you, you will do better. We finished a study about five years ago looking at patients with Alzheimer's disease, and most of them were under eight, in their 80s. And those who had sleep apnea, who were symptomatic, meaning they were sleepy, and, and uh, they, they performed much better after using CPAP therapy. 
and, um, and certain um, um, ethnic groups such as Southeast Asians or uh, African Americans, as, as they get older, they have a higher prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. Now, the consequences. You can comb their hair, dress them up, bathe them, but they fall asleep. And if you fall asleep on me tonight, okay, it won't be because I'm a poor speaker. Maybe you have sleep apnea. Maybe you should talk to your doctor. Sleep apnea or sleepiness um, can have severe consequences, motor vehicle accidents. Uh, even back in the Stone Age, um, this gentleman fell asleep at the wheel and he got into trouble. There also causes problems with your ability to function during the day. Uh, even, um, for example, lack of concentration, changes in the personality, depression, fatigue, erectile dysfunction, which is um, very common nowadays, family discord. Men, when they don't sleep well, they become impatient, angry. They chew the heads off of their wives or uh, their partners. Uh, women become a little more like just fatigued. They just don't have the energy to do things. And once you get them to sleep well, all those things disappear. Men become like little lambs. So the final consequence is cardiovascular disease, obesity, hypertension, stroke, hyperinsomnia, metabolic syndrome, which is a syndrome that basically a constellation of symptoms that eventually uh, or factors that will get you a heart attack or a stroke, uh, all kinds of problems that um, poor sleep or sleep apnea and obviously a heart attack. Not trying to scare you, but I guess maybe I am. What are the risk factors? Well, we talked about being overweight, obesity, and in the clinic we look at the neck circumference. If it's more than 17 inches in men or 16 inches in women, it's a risk factor for sleep apnea. It's an old one, but it still applies. If the tongue is big and it's scalloped, you know, how that see the indentations of the teeth in the tongue, that's also a risk factor uh, for obstructive sleep apnea. There is definitely a difference between men and women. Premenopausally, for every woman that has obstructive sleep apnea, there are three men that have it. Now, after the menopause, women start looking more like men, uh, physiologically speaking, uh, not, not anatomically. And uh, so there's a one-to-one -one relationship between those who have and those who don't have sleep apnea. But definitely a difference between men and women. Regardless, after you take care of the weight and the height and all this stuff, men have more sleep apnea. It turns out that estrogen is protective to the snoring and to the sleep apnea. And testosterone, it's, it's actually detrimental. People who use testosterone replacement end up snoring more and have uh, more sleep apnea. As we get older... Obstructive sleep apnea also worsens, both for men and for women, almost in a, in a, in a linear fashion as we get older. And so there's a few risk factors that we can help, you know, for example, losing weight and not gaining it. But getting old, we all get old. Being a man or a woman, we can't help that either. Um, <clears throat> but how do you know if you have it? You may be wondering now, I wonder if I have this or if your partner has it. Well, there's a clinical suspicion, and we have two types of sleep studies that we can do. We can send you to the laboratory and do a sleep study there, or we can do one at home. The studies at home are very good. We, at the VA hospital at UCSD, we've been doing it for the last 20 years, and we have lots of experience with the home sleep testing. It is designed for those people who you think have it. It's not a screening test, um, and, um, and then you do a study at home. This is a study in the laboratory. Um, the electrodes for the electroencephalogram are being applied to the patient's head. And you can see this gentleman's trying to sleep with all kinds of um, equipment on him. And there's a CPAP machine right here on the side in case it's needed. 
For the home sleep study, there's a myriad of, of equipment out there that's available to doing a home sleep study. It's a portable study. And again, it's primarily for the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. We've used this equipment quite extensively. We use this one also quite extensively in research projects. Uh, this one is a very indirect way of looking at uh, sleep apnea. It, it actually measures how big your pulses are in your finger. And when you're having an apneic event, the pulse actually gets smaller because your blood pressure goes up, sympathetic activity goes up, and the, the, the arteries kind of constrict. And when they look at that, they say, ah, he must be having a sleep apnea, but only in the setting of high probability before the test, meaning that the patient came in snoring and choking and gasping, has sleepiness. More importantly for tonight is, how do we treat this? If we diagnose you with sleep apnea, how do we treat it? Well, weight reduction, if you're overweight, is very, very important. Alcohol is a risk factor. It's a relative risk factor. I know people enjoy alcohol, but if you drink it too close to bed, it could be detrimental. For example, somebody who does not snore and drinks that night and goes to bed will snore that night. Somebody who snores but doesn't have sleep apnea and drinks will have sleep apnea that night. And if you have a sleep apnea, it will be worse with alcohol. Smoking, especially smoking more than two packs a day, it's also a risk factor for sleep apnea. And we always recommend good sleep habits. A regular sleep schedule, uh, getting your eight hours of sleep per night as much as possible, and getting your exercise every day. You probably heard of CPAP. It stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. This is the best therapy we have. It's cumbersome. People have to put it on. You have to wash it once in a while. However, I tell my patients it's 100% effective as long as you're able and willing to use it. There's, it's, it's rare. The, the uh, contraindications for using the therapy are quite rare. And uh, all it does is not a ventilator. All it does, it creates a pressure air splint that keeps the throat open, keeps the tongue from falling back and choking you, keeps the airway from collapsing, and that's all it does. And the person will just breathe on top without pressure. Oftentimes people think that it's producing oxygen. It's not. It's just giving you the ability to keep your throat open. And it's extremely effective. There's other treatments. This one is called an oral appliance. I call it a jaw advancement device. It fits in the teeth. It's custom made. You can have some over the counter. They're not very good. Uh, and it pulls the jaw forward. It implies that you have good teeth. Um, uh, you can do one even for people who don't have teeth, but they're not as effective. And what it does, it pulls the jaw forward, and the tongue attaches to the inside of the jaw. So when I pull my jaw forward, my tongue goes with it, and um, lo and behold, I open my throat. It's good for people who are young, who are thin, who have mild to moderate sleep apnea. For folks who have more severe apnea, it doesn't work as well. <laughs> And you probably have heard about surgery for this. Some people say, well, just cut it out, okay, and, and take it out and be done with it. Well, we were very excited about this 15, 20 years ago, and we used to do the surgery called the uvula palatopharyngoplasty, or UPPP, or UPPP. It turns out that it doesn't work very well. Uh, and you end up looking like an alien like this. This is a throat, there's no uvula anymore, no punching back like here. And, uh, and it turns out that it doesn't work, and sometimes people have trouble swallowing after this. You know, we're used to eating, and we like to talk to people and move around. Now you have to be very careful because food comes out your nose or, or you chokes you when you sleep, uh, when you eat. So it's quite disheartening for people who get this. Up to 30% of people have problems with swallowing afterwards. It turns out that uh, there's a few things that you can do to actually get rid of the sleep apnea. Losing weight is important. 
If you lose 10%, if you're obese and you lose 10% of your weight, you have sleep apnea. You can expect a drop in the severity by 50%. If you, um, if you get physically fit, that also is, is important, drops about 25%. But it turns out that playing the didgeridoo, this, this Australian instrument, uh, in a regular basis, 20 minutes a day um, of didgeridoo playing, can, and th- these studies, two good studies done in England, uh, show that, that the um, sleep apnea and severity can drop by 50%. Now, this gentleman is a male, you know, middle-aged. Maybe he needs it. Nicole Kipman probably does not need it. This gentleman definitely needs the didgeridoo, and uh, he's going at it. Physical fitness is important, and this study... Uh, showed that um, they compared two groups, one um, doing exercises, um, mostly aerobic, 30 minutes a day, and uh, two days a week they would do weight training, as compared to people who were doing yoga and stretching, things of that sort. Uh, And it turns out that even though neither of the group, none of the groups um, lost weight, those who were in the exercise group, their apnea severity dropped by about 25%. So getting physically peaked, uh, fit, uh, leaner, meaner, tougher, faster, stronger is also good for your um, decreasing the severity of sleep apnea. Now, insomnia. How many of you have suffered from insomnia? Okay, I see lots of hands, lots of hands. In fact, insomnia as we get older seems to be a plague. And uh, it's not so much that the aging process causes insomnia, it's just that we get so many aches and pains, you know. I always tell people that uh, the sign that you are 40 years old is when you sit down, you go, uh, you get up, you go, uh, that means you're at least 40, at least 40. And so um, this is why people have difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty maintaining sleep, or sometimes we just wake up way too early, we can't go back to sleep, and then we get up and start, you know, putting around the, the workshop. Or some people just sleep, but they just don't feel like it, it's restful. Now, in those cases, they could have like sleep apnea or they could be kicking their legs at night as it wakes, wakes them up, but sometimes it can be insomnia. So we can, we can uh, define insomnia as trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, and waking up way too early. Now, most of us are going to complain at one time or another of insomnia, 95% of us. And if I just pull you, I got about 30% here when I just told you who had had insomnia, and that's what it says here. At any time, about 30% of people would say, yeah, in the last two weeks I had problems with insomnia. And not necessarily you took medications, but you just could not sleep. But people who have insomnia that is chronic, that actually affects your ability to do what you want to do during the day, about 10 to 15%. And these folks are the ones who have seen a myriad of doctors, have taken every single medication, and oftentimes it doesn't work. And today, I'm, I'm going to show my bias. Um, I don't use medications for insomnia very often, and I will tell you why. And because there's better medications. And when you take medications, you're dependent on that medication. If it works, you're dependent. You stop it, you tend to get rebound insomnia. And then you're very afraid to stop it. And so I get people who say, just don't stop it because I, I won't be able to sleep. And um, I tell you, nobody dies from insomnia. Just remember that. Nobody dies from this stuff. It may make you miserable, but you don't die. So I tried to convince them of that, and then we can start making changes slowly to develop better sleep habits, change their behavior, change their thinking. Well, a little more about that. So when we, when we deal with insomnia, we deal with the three Ps. 
of Spillman's model. The first P is predisposition. Some people just are prone to getting insomnia. It's genetically. It wasn't their father, their mother. Uh, physiologic hyperarousal. If you take somebody with insomnia, somebody with, without, and you stress them, the same stress, the person with insomnia tends to become more hypertensive, heart rate goes up higher. Uh, and sometimes they're worry words. It's, it's like the father you know, pacing back and forth until the son or the daughter comes in at night. Um, there's no need for that. It's not going to make him come home faster. Right? So, and then there's precipitating factors, usually some type of stress. Often people come and say, yeah, I, I have insomnia. Well, how long have you had it? Five years ago. Well, what happened? Well, that's when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Obviously, it's a precipitating stress, a big stress. And so you can see why the insomnia came. Or, or that's when I got a promotion. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, we promote ourselves to the level that we end up too much stress, end up with insomnia. Or that's when they start developing poor sleep hygiene. doesn't mean that they don't bathe when they go to sleep. It's just their habits about sleep are poor. Drinking coffee too late, exercising too late, staying up in the casino too late, all kinds of problems. And sometimes we can intervene in the precipitating factors. For example, I had uh, a colleague who came in uh, to see me, and he had uh, insomnia. Had tried the medications, uh, Ambien and Lunesta, hadn't worked. And so I asked him, okay, what happened? And he says, yeah, he, he got promoted. And I said, well, either we can work together and see if we can work through this thing, or you can quit and go back to your regular job. He decided to quit, went back to the regular job, and insomnia disappeared immediately. It's just peace of mind. In fact, you need peace of mind to sleep. And the other one is perpetuating factors. This is where we do most of our intervention. We develop maladaptive behavior. A very common one is, well, I'm only sleeping four hours per night. I'm going to go to bed earlier so I can maximize the number of hours that I can sleep. It just makes it worse. And in the morning, you're angry because you spend 10 hours in bed, you only slept four. And so that's a mistake. Or having a TV. Whoever told people that the TV is a sedative hypnotic? The TV was, was invented to keep you awake because they want to sell you stuff. That's why, you know, they sell you the food and then they sell you how to lose the weight. All kinds of stuff. And, um, <clears throat> and there's something called conditional arousal. Something happened in that bedroom, something bad, you know, stressful. Uh, because, well, we take all kinds of things to the bedroom. And so as soon as you may be falling asleep in front of the TV and the couch and the wife says, okay, get up and go to sleep. And so we get up and go to sleep and then you're wide awake as we walk in the bedroom. And we say, look, I have insomnia. And it's because something's there that uh, psychologically we don't even understand, but it affects us and we wake up when we go to bed. Looking at the clock is one of the worst ones. Sometimes I would, I would say that 20% of my patients get cured just by telling them, cover the clock. Don't look at it. If you wake up, don't mind it. Just, just go back to sleep and you're fine after that. Now, there's some drugs that will affect your ability to sleep well. Alcohol, caffeine. Alcohol, sometimes um, heavy use of alcohol will produce either sleep apnea or worsen it, or can produce insomnia. You stop it, it goes away. It can produce also hypertension. You stop it, it goes away. Caffeine, obviously, some people say, well, I only drink in the morning. But for those people who have insomnia that is severe, that requires medication, behooves them to get rid of any type of stimulant. Because in the sensitive individual, the effect in sleep may last up to 24 hours. Now, the effect to keep you awake and alert and feeling good may not last very long, but the ability to uh, have a good night's sleep may be lasting up to 24 hours. Diet pills goes without saying, 
Nicotine, I have people who wake up in the middle of the night to smoke because they sort of withdraw and they need to smoke and then they go back to sleep. So they smoke two or three cigarettes through the middle of the night. Um, why? Because um, nicotine wakes you up also. Now, how do you treat it? Well, there's two treatments. Most of you are uh, um, familiar with the pharmacological therapy because most people think insomnia. What's the treatment? Well, you go take a pill. But I'm here to... to uh, um, advocate that the pill is not the answer. The pill may be necessary in certain situations, especially when you have an acute stress that you can't get rid of. Uh, but as a long-term therapy, I think it should be rethought. Sometimes we just give up and say, okay, here, have your medication and go home. But uh, it's important to, to think about what are the causes, what are the perpetuating factors, and then try to make some changes. And that's what this therapy tries to do, called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBTI, I for insomnia, because this therapy can be used for a number of problems, including chronic pain. A little bit more more about this, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Uh, Part of it is something called sleep hygiene. Every treatment should include sleep hygiene. It's just basically the basic habits of sleep. Have a regular sleep schedule, go to bed at the same time, prepare for sleep, unwind before you go to sleep. Don't drink wine. I mean, unwind before you go to sleep. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> and get up in the morning at the same time. Get bright light in the morning. Uh, go outdoors. Uh, exercise if possible. Uh, stay active through the day. Keep a healthy attitude. And that's what sleep hygiene is, basically. Relaxation training, that's for people who are under stress. You know, um, uh, there's people who, who will deal with you know, relaxing your, your toes, your knees, your legs, your belly, your chest, and hopefully by the time they get to the head, you're asleep. Uh, almost like self-hypnosis. Stimulus control is something very interesting because it teaches you that the bed is only for sleep. Well, I ask you for two things, but sleep is a primary one. You shouldn't do anything else in that bedroom except sleep and the other thing. And I tell you, um, there's been studies looking at how many people have televisions in the bedroom. By the way, how many of you have a TV in the bedroom? Let me just see. Don't be afraid. I won't publicize it. Okay, about half of you. Maybe more than half. All right. The TV, again, is meant to, to keep you awake. And I tell you, even if you say, well, I turned it off, there's a temptation. When you're there, you know, just to see what's there. Especially men, we keep it with a clicker, right? Click and click and click. We don't watch anything. We're just clicking around. It's a sport. Uh, so uh, if you can, move it out of the bedroom. Have a talk with your wife or your bed partner and move it out of the bedroom if you're having a problem sleeping. We did report reading, reading, okay, again, uh, and this is those two things, the sleep and the other thing, it shouldn't. Uh, Reading is good. Now, for most of us who don't have insomnia, it doesn't affect us. We can do anything we want in the bedroom. We still go to sleep. But if you're having insomnia, it behooves you to leave all those things and do them outside. The bedroom should become your fortress. No one can hurt you there is your, your fortress of solitude. Uh, there could be a war raging outside, but you're at peace there, no one can hurt you, you go to sleep. You lay down your life, pick it up in the morning. And, but when we bring all this stuff, imagine watching CSI, and you're an insomniac and trying to turn it off and go to sleep. Impossible. Just impossible. All right. Um, sleep restriction is the most powerful tool we have. If you're sleeping only four hours per night, and you're staying in bed ten hours, so your sleep efficiency is very poor, 4 divided by 10. And so what we do is very simple. We just say, okay, so we're going to keep you only 5 hours in bed. All of a sudden, your sleep efficiency rises. And you say, wow, I can sleep. And, uh, and then we trick you into then slowly just increasing the time in bed, and pretty soon you're doing just fine. 
people with insomnia who is, that is severe have lost their confidence in their ability to sleep. And they're actually afraid. Sleep becomes a challenge. It's an anxiety-provoking uh, situation. It shouldn't be. It should be sweet, pure. You go to sleep and that's it. You're gone. And then the cognitive therapy. Again, I've done some of that with you right now so far. You don't know it, but I was doing it. Trying to change your thinking about sleep. A common example is, oh, I, I must get eight hours of sleep, otherwise I'll be a basket case tomorrow. Who said you should? So if you get six, you're not going to die. You're going to be fine. Just wait. The next day will be better. Don't worry about it. And if it doesn't happen, eventually it will come. It's when you worry about these things that are really not that important, uh, that somebody said, well, eight hours, you know, Laredo said it, eight hours is important. Not every night, okay? Just, just, maybe it's like the code. It's a code, it's, it's, it's a guideline, okay? It's not a law. So the misperceptions that we have. All right. So uh, sleep hygiene, again, you can find that in the Internet. I'm not going to spend much time about this. Uh, we already mentioned some of the, the aspects of sleep hygiene. One aspect of sleep hygiene that I do want to mention is the hour of sleep preparation. I'm a great believer in this. It's part of sleep hygiene. For somebody who has difficulty falling asleep, we, I don't recommend finishing whatever you're doing turning off the light and getting in bed. You're going to have problems. We always tell them your day ends one hour before your bedtime. So if you're going to go to bed at 11, your day ends at 10. No more TV, no more work, no more email, no more um, Xbox, whatever you're doing. And remember, everything is done outside the bedroom. The first half hour, you'll spend it to do the mechanical aspects of getting ready. You brush your teeth, you put on your pajamas. If you bathe, bathe. Women brush their hair. I don't know why, because it gets messed up when you go to bed. But anyway, do whatever you have to do. And then you'll have about 30 minutes left to sit down with a good book, okay? No pictures, no pictures, just, just text. Something you enjoy, you can still put down. None of these uh, very scary novels or things. Just, just nice, something nice. And relax, enjoy. Your day is over, nothing else is bothering you. And, uh, and then after that, go to sleep. And it becomes a habit. Pretty soon, you'll be able to fall asleep because when you walk in there, it's slumber time. Soft music is okay. Uh, that will work too. All right. So what about pharmacological therapy? Like I said, I don't use, I use it, but not, not uh, as a primary uh, therapy. In fact, I tell my doctors, avoid the urge to start a sedative hypnotic, a sleeping medication, as the first line of therapy. Investigate what's causing the insomnia and then do something about it. Um, but we use medications for short-acting, uh, medications for patients who have problems falling asleep. Longer-acting medications for people who have trouble maintaining their sleep. They fall asleep okay, but they wake up several times through the night. And you've heard about the side effects. For example, what this lady is doing here, you know, this, this man is claiming he's taking Ambien and he's sleepwalking. It does happen. It does happen. I, my last patient that had this is waking up with this chocolate in the bed. And he says, well, who's putting chocolate in my bed? And one night he woke up and he was chewing through a chocolate bar, through paper and everything. That's what happened. That's what Ambien does to you. Now, sometimes it can be a little more dangerous than that. And uh, not important to go through the names of these medications at uh, this time. But there have been studies comparing the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and pharmacological therapy. Well, obviously, a pill works faster. If you give me enough medication, yes, I will fall asleep. Uh, the question is, is it normal sleep? And it's not. Pills do change our quality of our sleep a little bit. Uh, but um, 
But overall, both of the therapies were about the same in the expected results. If, you, if it took you an hour to fall asleep, both therapies would probably lower your ability to fall asleep to 30 minutes, 50% improvement on everything. And uh, but CBT was superior in reducing sleep latency, improving sleep quality. Up to 80% of insomniacs will eventually benefit. And six months later, there were more good sleepers, you know, 30% or so, normal sleepers, as compared to pharmacological therapy, which is none. Because you depend on the medication to sleep well. Once you stop it, you're back with the same problem. You have not fixed anything. Let's talk about age-related changes in the circadian rhythm. Um, as we get older, you see people falling asleep in their wheelchairs, and there's a, this doesn't show very well. Sometimes, as we get older, we get sick, and we stay either inside the house or, or in a nursing home. And I tell you, we have published in this university that in nursing homes, the average lighting is basically being in dim light, basically in the darkness. And, and that promotes problems with the circadian rhythmicity, most of the time falling asleep too early, and sometimes in the young individual falling asleep too late. And we need this bright sunlight exposure, it's called a zygaber, a time giver, that will, will um, entrain our brain into a 24-hour cycle. Remember I told you that our brain has a, a clock that is more than 24 hours long. And our work schedule also helps us. Clocks, looking at the clock also helps us. And when we get elderly, sometimes we just don't look at those things. Our brain also atrophies, becomes smaller, hopefully not as small as Homer Simpson's, uh, but, but it does atrophy, and that weakens that central clock that we have, the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So it's not as effective in showing those ups and downs in our ability to stay awake or, or be sleepy through the day. The amount of melatonin that we produce also may go down, and melatonin, people think of it as a sleeping pill. It really is not a very good sleeping pill. It helps us regulate our sleep. We use it um, in the clinic to advance or delay your sleep phase. If you're going to bed too early or too late, we use it, manipulate it so that we can get you to sleeping in a socially acceptable time. And, uh, and also the weaker zygabers who are not low in light exposure. The end result, we advance the sleep phase and there's something called sundowning. Uh, elderly people who may be a little bit demented, when the sun goes down, they go berserk, they go bananas, they're more awake, they're doing all kinds of stuff. And in the daytime, they're all asleep all day long. And this is the last uh, disorder that I will discuss today. It's called REM sleep behavior disorder. It is a disorder that affects primarily elderly men. I'm talking about 75 years and older. It can't be describing younger people. I saw a younger person today, 57 years old, with this problem. It has been described in children and women, but the great majority, 99%, are men who are elderly. And these elderly men have these dreams that are violent or action-packed. They're usually fighting or running away from something, and, and, uh, and they fight back. They're all very valiant, and they fight back, and they can move in their sleep. And these dreams happen in REM sleep. Now, we dream in REM sleep and in deep sleep, but 85% of our dreaming is done in REM sleep. REM sleep has a characteristic that when we're in that sleep stage, we are literally paralyzed. We cannot move. Our, our heart moves, our respiratory muscles move, uh, not as well as usual, but we are literally paralyzed, except for a few little twitches here and there. This is why when you're having the nightmare of the lion chasing you, you don't get up and run and then smash against the wall. But these men can. They cannot run, but they can kick and they can punch. And um, oftentimes, they hit the bed partners, like purposely, with a punching. 
And the last uh, patient I have here at the VA that showed up with this, showed up with the wife, and the wife says, you got to do something. I woke up this morning, he had me in a headlock. And uh, so it can be quite dangerous. There have been celebrated murders where, you know, they got away with murder because they said he had REM sleep behavior disorder. But if you get up and go to the kitchen, get a knife and stab your wife, uh, that is not REM sleep behavior disorder. That is premeditated murder. But anyway, but they can injure themselves. And one of the problems here is that 85% of them will develop some type of neurodegenerative disorder like Parkinson's disease or, or uh, some other type of, of uh, disorders such as this multiple system atrophy. Uh, and uh, sometimes they already have it. They just don't know it. It's very, very mild. So, you know, we look at it, we can see the Parkinson's there. And so that's the only problem with this. It's a very curious type of uh, problem. People in the old days uh, didn't know about it. They used to tie themselves to the bed because they used to roll and fall out of bed and hurt themselves. <clears throat> the diagnosis, we clinical suspicion. We do a polysomnogram. We do a questionnaire. We must rule out obstructive sleep apnea. Sleep apnea always comes up because sleep apnea is a great masquerader. It can present as insomnia. It can present as kicking your legs at night. It can present as, as a, a depression. Um, and as REM sleep behavior disorder. And we treat that and the symptoms go away. But, not, but that's not true REM sleep behavior disorder. It's like REM sleep behavior disorder. And one of the things is, is that um, this disease or condition is very sensitive to tiny doses of medications that are called um, uh, something like clonazepam, benzodiazepines. A tiny dose, a quarter of a milligram, will take care of this problem in most cases. How do we treat it? We make the bedroom safe, remove anything sharp objects from around the bedroom. We counsel them about uh, Parkinson's disease. Sometimes I'd have them sleep on the floor until we get uh, things under control. And I set the, the medication, clonazepam, very tiny doses, a quarter to an eighth of a, a milligram sometimes is effective. Melatonin in high doses, up to nine milligrams or so, can also be effective except in high doses, melatonin can cause hypertension. So in conclusion, aging does not decrease the need for us to sleep. The problem is as we get older, we lose some of our abilities to sleep, uh, or we have many, uh, we accumulate illnesses that will affect our ability to sleep, primarily pain. Pain is something that affects us as we age. Certainly, sleep disorders are more prevalent as we age. For example, sleep apnea, as we discussed, insomnia, REM sleep behavior disorder, or advanced sleep phase disorder. And good habits um, of sleep are able to maintain your sleep health for a long time. And, and, and there's no rule that says you should have poor sleep quality just because you're older. So if you maintain good habits and good health, there's no reason why you can't maintain your sleep health forever. Thank you very much. I think we had time for questions. Right there. There are studies using miracle marijuana to see what it does to sleep. It turns out that it doesn't do very much to sleep, as far as the studies that we've done here at UCSD and others. Now, some people use it to relax. Um, I consider marijuana uh, the lazy man's drug. It does make you lazy. And uh, when it becomes uh, legal, uh, hopefully it don't, doesn't... Uh, change us to become a lazy society because it does just sort of relax. You don't care. You just sit there and not very dangerous, but it just makes you like that. Uh, and, um, but um, some people use it for sleep and it does relax them and help them sleep. Uh, but again, it's, it's a substance. It's a medication. 
Uh, it, is, it is hiding what the problem is. You have to ask, well, why are you anxious? Why can't you relax? And then, once you find the problem, try to resolve it, and then use your brain. We have a powerful computer here with all kinds of hormone uh, and drug-like hormones that can uh, help you have a better sleep. Right here was first. That's a question that I get answered. The question was, if, if we use a tablet, one of those electrical tablets, uh, uh, to read, is that, does that affect your sleep? Uh, I recommend cranking down the light as much as you can, but without straining your eyesight, because light is something that keeps you awake, and light will decrease the amount of melatonin your body produces at night. There is something called the dim light melatonin onset. When the sun goes down, the lights start going dim, our melatonin rises and in preparation for sleep and helps us uh, get better sleep. It doesn't necessarily give you sleep, better sleep. And any light will actually shut off immediately that melatonin production. For example, if you get up in the middle of the night and go to the restroom and turn on the lights, you may have a harder time going back to sleep as compared to you just use a night light. And if you're going to use a night light, use a yellow light. It's better than blue light, green light, or white light. Right here in the corner. The question was, uh, dry throat at night, what may be causing it, medication, something else? Is there a position that can improve the dryness of the throat. Dry throat um, can be caused by medications. The tricyclic antidepressants, the SSRIs antidepressants, uh, diuretics that your doctor may be giving you, all of those will make your throat and your mouth dry. If you already have problems with your salivary glands, they don't produce as much saliva, again, that will produce dryness. But the most common cause is opening your mouth and breathing through your mouth when you're asleep, snoring. Every snore opens their mouth because they're choking. So if I choke you, the first thing you do before you hit me is you open your mouth, okay? So that's what's happening. To prevent that, um, either if you have sleep apnea, you get a diagnosis. If it's just plain snoring, you're opening your mouth, sleeping on your side or sleeping on your stomach, if you can. And that usually takes care of the problem. Then you have the problem of drooling, all right? But, um, you know, you can't win. There's nothing free in this world. Yes, ma'am. All right. And the question is, what about restless leg syndrome? Well, the news about restless leg syndrome is they've changed the name. They don't want to call it restless leg syndrome anymore. They call it the Willis-Eckbaum disease. And I said, this is ridiculous. I mean, restless legs is so easy. But it turns out that it's not always just the legs. That's why they changed the name. It can be the arms. Or it could be even the chest or even the head. Restless leg syndrome has four diagnostic questions, and you have to have yes answers to all of them. One is, do you have an urge, a sensation, okay, usually from the knees down, and it's a sensation that is difficult to describe. People often say, I feel like an energy building up, like my bones want to jump out of my legs. Uh, rarely painful. It can be higher up too. Happens only in the evening. It happens only when you're resting, after you've been resting for a while. And if you get up and walk around, it's gone immediately. And you sit down, 10 minutes later, it comes back again. That's restless leg syndrome. It, uh, by itself, it, that's how it comes. It gets worse as we get older. Uh, we did a, sleep, a study here in San Diego looking at Hispanics and whites. Whites had about a 17% prevalence of restless legs. And Hispanics, about a 12% prevalence. But the funny thing is that the Hispanics, as they became more Americanized, they lived here longer, they spoke only English, they became more like, like the whites, about 17%. Mm -hmm. 
And there's something in the water here, I think. And that when, when Mexicans come from Mexico, you know, I'm a Mexican, we came from Mexico, become more Americanized, now we have the same problems. And uh, so, uh, you know, go figure. Okay. The question is, melatonin for long overnight flights going many, many time zones away. Well, uh, yes, you can use it, but it has to be used appropriately. Uh, if you just use it, period, uh, it may not help you. Uh, actually, the best thing, because melatonin is very slow, okay, it doesn't work right away. If you really are, are let's say, flying to Europe, and you're going to get there in the morning, and you have to give a talk or something in the morning, and you want to sleep in the plane because it's off hours, it's different hours than your normal. So it's okay to take a sleeping medication to help you sleep in the plane. So when you get there, you're somewhat refreshed. The best thing to do is to be with the natives when you get there. Wake, do what the natives do. Go to sleep with them when they, when they sleep. And get up at the same time they do. Don't sleep with the natives, okay? may not be healthy. All right, well, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.